How did you sleep last night? Me, not so good. Was thinking about COVID-19 and how everything seems to have changed overnight. We've spoken to a number of truly inspirational people that go the extra yard and put their careers on the line. Yesterday, I was lucky enough to talk with Dr. Pierre Corey. Last night, I went over the interview with Dr. Corey. It made me angry. It made me very sad. It made me feel quite helpless. It also made me realize that this pandemic is not about our well-being or health. In fact, it's the opposite to our well-being. The parasitic institutions such as corrupt government, corrupt big tech and corrupt media are the overlords determined to rule the world for the power and the money. As British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said, it's about greed and capitalism. Today we cover a deadly serious problem surrounding the neglect of early treatment for COVID-19 in countries such as the US, New Zealand, Australia and the UK. Our guest is Dr. Pierre Corey. We also talked to Blake Christian, CPA, about the economic and social impacts of the Biden-created immigration crisis. Dr. Pierre Corey is the former chief of the Critical Care Service and medical director of the Trauma and Life Support Center at the University of Wisconsin. He is a master educator, having led over 100 courses nationally and internationally and has won numerous teaching awards in every hospital he has worked. Dr. Corey and several colleagues, all of whom are highly published critical care specialists from major academic medical centers with decades-long clinical and research experiences in severe infectious diseases, formed the FLCCC Alliance in early 2020. They have made several other significant contributions to the field of medicine. They recently led a global panel of medical and scientific experts calling on governments to put an end to the COVID-19 pandemic by immediately adopting policies that allow for the use of ivermectin in the prevention and treatment of COVID-19. Their pleas have been ignored by the public health bureaucrats and government leaders. This dereliction of duty by the public health bureaucrats and government leaders will lead to the needless death and suffering of citizens, not only in America, but in countries that follow America's lead, such as the UK, Australia and New Zealand. Is there another agenda being pursued by our governments or is it simply filthy lucre? Dr. Pierre Corey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, looking at ivermectin, uh, looking at COVID, uh, what about the saying, it sounds a bit like instead of Nero, we replace that with the FDA and government is fiddling while Rome burns? I, I, I can't. Um, you want me to comment on that statement? I can't agree more. Um, I mean, um, it, it's it's what myself and many of my co- like-minded colleagues feel, which is that we're in a war. Um, the cases and case counts are just exploding. The deaths continue, and we need to act. 
And we have things that we can act on, but it's just not happening. It, it seems that our uh, leaders and our authorities are, are pretending as if this is peacetime, and they're just sitting back and waiting for peacetime data to roll to them. When they say, and I, and I always tell myself, I must not bring up this again, but I always do. When they say it ain't about the money, it really is about the money because ivermectin is such a cheap product to make. And the money is just not in this cheap product. It's in the vaccines, isn't it? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say about money because I got to tell you, as a physician and a scientist, I hate opining about financial influences and, and, and how it dictates what we do. But I got to tell you, when I'm being dismissed and discredited as a scientist for the data that I bring forth, I look at the other side and, and I look at what's driving that. It, it's not data. It's not science. Mm. And it's something else. And so, yes, there are other influences. And it's it's unfortunate. Our, our system, the system that we have has a lot of those influences built in. And that's what I've come to learn in COVID is that I'm up against Influences which are not driven by science or data. Um, and, and it seems clear to me that financial interests uh, are, are, are a huge part of what I'm, I'm up against. I looked at the, uh, the fabulous global expert panel press conference from, uh, I think it was last week. Yeah. Have you, have you had any response from the governments that you were appealing <laughs> to? Or have they just gone still dead? Uh, don't call us, we'll call you. Yeah, no. So the, so the answer is absolutely not. Um, we've had more direct appeals to the government. So, uh, you know, uh, you may know this, but uh, myself, my colleague, as well as the lead researcher for the WHO, we have presented our data to multiple major national governmental agencies, including the FDA, the NIH. Um, they've heard our data. They've asked us to keep them apprised of new data. We have sent them multiple emails as new trials come out, new data comes out. Um, last week's conference is just another one. Uh, they, they've never responded beyond a thank you. Every time we give them more data, they say thank you, that's it. And what do they do with it? Just put it aside for a rainy day? You're asking me? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. I'm just telling you I get thank yous. That's it. And then and then what I see coming out, like we saw this week, is the European Medical uh, Agency. Um, they came out with an opinion, which was a carbon copy, copy and paste opinion of every other Western major national healthcare agency. It's copy and paste. They say the same thing. Insufficient evidence, insufficient evidence while people are dying. There's never going to be enough evidence for them to, to, to recommend a low-cost, safe, feasible treatment, which actually might disturb the mass vaccination policy, and it might interfere with all of these other pharmaceutically engineered um, uh, products that they want to bring to market. I'm sorry to sound like a, a crazy man and a, and a conspiracy therapist. I'm a physician. I, I really, this is not my normal stance. Um, but but as I've tried to practice medicine and bring truth and science to the world, this is what I'm seeing. I, I, I am seeing really inexplicable, unconscionable objections 
to the science at hand and the data at hand. What's the current position then of the World Health Organization on early treatment for COVID-19 using ivermectin? The current stance, and now, now he, let, let me start to sound positive because I don't want to sound like a crank, or, but here's the thing. All of the Western uh, country national healthcare agencies have been, um, uh, let me me differentiate. When you look at the data on ivermectin, there is what I would call an active systematic review and a passive one. All of the national Western countries are doing passive systematic reviews, which is they sit, they wait. They look at what's being published and then they kind of review and they do it kind of selectively. Let's be clear. The WHO has been unique amongst all major national international healthcare agencies in that they have a team that they've hired with Unitaid. It's called the ACT Accelerator Program. And they have a team of scientists who are actively looking at all repurposed drugs. They've been doing this since June. Mm -hmm. Ivermectin is the seventh drug they've investigated. The prior six have all failed. They've either been negative or have had completely mixed results. Ivermectin has been the opposite. Since November, that team has done nothing but research ivermectin because the data behind ivermectin has been consistently and reproducibly positive. So when you ask me what is the WHO doing, their team has been totally focused 24-7 on ivermectin since November. November, December, January, February, March. That's four months. They're now up to because I've I, I, we collaborate. You know, those research and myself, we 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 talk a lot because they know that I've I, myself and my my group has done a lot of work. They're up to about twenty seven randomized control trials with over three thousand patients, mm. and the data shows large statistically significant reductions in mortality, in time to clinical recovery, and days until viral clearance. It's astoundingly positive. So when you ask me what is the WHO doing, their teams are working hard. They're compiling the data. I know what the data shows. The million-dollar question is what will the WHO do with that data? Will they produce a guidance for the world based on that data, or will they do, which some of the pessimists in my group say, will they say, we need more data? Defer, delay, dismiss. And and that that's what the most pessimistic of us think, is that they're not going to act on this data. We believe, and we've believed this for months, if you've heard my advocacy, there's sufficient data to make a recommendation as minimally a cautious one that it should be used. It's one of the world's safest medicines. It's the most low cost. It's the most feasible for the world, mm-hmm. especially all of the low income countries that cannot afford or have access to these expensive vaccines. It, 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 it's, it's, it's a humanitarian solution that should be promoted and guided. Because it's really odd. You have the... At the moment, we have these vaccines, and being real about it, they're still in a trial phase. I mean, they're still being trialled because we still don't know what will happen in three or four years' time. So they're saying that we'll get the results by 2023. 
So we understand that there was, inverted commas, an emergency. On the other hand, though, you have ivermectin, which has been proven to work, is so mm. inexpensive, does no harm, and there's this great wall of don't come near us again with this information. We need to stick with, stick with the money, the money being vaccines. Was there a question there? Because I got to tell you, I agreed with everything you said. I, I, I don't even know what to say anymore. Mm. I, I don't know what to say anymore. I mean, everything that you just stated is is exactly what's happening, which is that it's been it's been universally accepted that a global mass vaccination strategy is the way to go. Mm-hmm. And anything different is not supported and not feasible. It, I just don't understand it. I just don't understand it. Peter McCullough, uh, very critical of the the goings-on at the moment. He says it's ridiculous that you have to wait to go blue before they rush you to a hospital and you have this early treatment process available. Look, your manuscript, Emerging Evidence for Ivermectin, has been accepted for publication in the American (laughs) Journal of Therapeutics. What's the significance of this? Oh, so, so well, here, here's what I hope the significance of it. Mm. In normal times, without all these forces and, and different initiatives and people trying to forward uh, the, the, their policies, in normal times, a peer-reviewed publication which concludes that a medicine is – Uh, a solution to a disease in normal times that would become a major media uh, event and people would report that around the world and they would say you know what a a solution has been found for x and y disease that's what i think the significance is now when my paper gets published and i think it's about two to three weeks away I am very curious to see what would happen, what will happen, because I will I will tell you that my experience in my advocacy in in trying to disseminate the results of our review, and it's not just my review. There's a number of groups, Tess Laurie, uh, uh, some of the most um, expert systematic reviewers and and meta analysis researchers on medicines in the world, which is Tess Laurie and her group in the UK, their paper past peer review and was not published and so i i don't know what's going to happen when this gets published is it going to be dismissed and and ignored by the world i don't know in normal times it should be a major uh, major media event and it should be disseminated around the world that ivermectin is a solution to covid and it should be adopted worldwide that is the conclusion of our paper and that was supported by four expert peer reviewers, two of them senior FDA scientists and another one a very senior governmental scientist. And so we passed through one of the most rigorous peer reviews you can imagine. It's a scientific manuscript and it concludes that ivermectin should be adopted worldwide in the prevention and treatment of COVID-19. When that gets published, you tell me what happens. Now, uh, moving to the next stage, censorship. Your, for example, your congressional testimony was uh, removed from YouTube on C-SPAN's channel. On YouTube's decision, you said YouTube was extremely misguided and was censoring new important information. What was YouTube's objection and has the video been reinstated? 
So the video has not been reinstated. The best I can understand, because YouTube did not sit me down and explain to me what they were doing. But, you know, I've had a lot of people fighting censorship. They've told me their their efforts and their replies. And and, and here's I'm going to be generous and then I'm going to be negative. But YouTube, I believe um, uh, their algorithms for what is medical misinformation and not has shifted. The crudest one is if you promote any therapy that's not recommended by the authorities. And as you know, uh, ivermectin is not recommended by our authorities. Now, I've never heard in history of science being advanced by authorities. It's usually by individual researchers, you know, uh, coming upon discoveries and then trying to disseminate it. Um, And and so um, one thing is. We do not follow the narrative of our leaders. The other thing, and and that's probably fair, is that they were against me saying that if you take ivermectin, you will not get sick. I think they felt that was overstated. And in some sense, it may have been, but it was also data-driven. You know, we had two large studies showing that patient, that, that healthcare workers who took ivermectin regularly, none of them got sick. So it, it wasn't hyperbole. It was actually data-driven. And so I, I, I'm kind of done trying to figure out what they think is right and wrong. Uh, they come up with their own rules. Uh, my general sense is that if it doesn't come from our leading public healthcare agencies, it's misinformation. And um, I, I'm just going to add the last thing, which is uh, if you've looked at the history of society, of democracy, of of the evolution of the humankind, there's no great thinker and there's no lesson that has ever resulted in the fact that censorship is a good thing. Now, could that be different now with social media? Maybe. But I got to tell you, censorship has never been shown to lead to a societal good period and and i'm i'm sorry we're seeing it again and i i've never seen i've never lived in such censorship as we are now i i mean literally you do not see in any major media any positive reports of ivermectin or negative reports on the vaccines it's like a lockdown and i find that very concerning Again, goes right back to before. Um, I mean, I'll, you can maybe throw in the ignorance factor here, but you know, if it ain't about the money, it really is about the money. And um, um, it, it's just quite surprising that mainstream media, uh, along with uh, uh, major uh, social media outlets, uh, government, uh, the um, World Health Organization and other mm-hmm. large groups in the medical profession, all have the same narrative. And um, once you cut out discussion, you haven't got much left, have you? No. Where's the healthy Mm. debate? Mm. Where where is the opposition? Why does every, you know, it should be scary to everyone that the narrative is the same everywhere. It it would be fine if it's correct, um, but it's only correct if if it rises out of a debate. (laughs) Mm. I mean, where's the debate? Where, Where is that healthy exchange of data and different perspectives and so you can determine what is the right way when you're provided with only one interpretation 
I, I, I would be very worried about that. I, I mean, I like sifting through data mm. and seeing different perspectives and determining what I think is right. That's not what's happening. That's not healthy. It's not healthy. Isn't it funny what was is no, no longer is? Um, if we were having this, this discussion, say, three years ago, you'd be lauded for having, you know, not being outspoken, but at the same time bringing something out in the open and there'd be this, this discussion and yada, 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 yada. It seems like from, you know, this not being political, but from the time Donald Trump became president or just before it, that the ramping up from, by, from uh, social media and mainstream media to opposing views, ultimately becoming censorship, has ramped up from that time until now that they've almost reached this crescendo, this great, yeah. you know, the drums beating, the, the the trumpets blowing, and but where to from here? What happens after that? Because you're, you know, you've been um, uh, sort of uh, what's the word? Um, put on the almost on the outside of the the, the circle by the the uh, by public health experts and the medical fraternity for being outspoken. So where do we go from here? Because if you haven't got a voice. If you can't get this out, if all the if, if if you are being dictated to by social media by some dweeb in a room saying you're talking rubbish and with your qualifications, I mean it's just it's beyond ridiculous. So where do you go from this? I mean, what happens next? I I don't want to sound so defeated, but but I I don't know that there's a solution right now. I think we've already lost the narrative. I think. The the process has already been fixed. They're rigid. Um, my only hopes are in the reckoning, which is once we get past this pandemic and we solve it, and I think it's going to be some combination of vaccines and ivermectin, and it's going to take a while for ivermectin to be recognized because there are so many forces suppressing it and dismissing it. But I, I do believe that eventually we'll get there. The thing that kills me is the amount of patients that have to die and the amount of time that this crisis gets extended by dismissing and ignoring really good evidence. Where do we go from here? I really think it's going to be in the reckoning. When we review this and we look back, we're going to see the mistakes we made. We're going to see that censorship was a mistake. We're going to see that the suppression of, of information from doctors on the front lines actually hurt. Uh, and, and that's what I really believe. Um, I, I got to tell you, though, you know, I'm known as a master educator. I've won uh, teaching awards at every institution I've been at. I, I uh, that, that that's sort of what I am. I, what I'm gonna call is I'm a clinician educator. So I, I am a bedside doctor who teaches, and all of my former trainees and colleagues they reach out to me and they're questioning how I ended up in this place of this fringe doctor with supposedly fringe opinions. They know me. They know that I'm a clinician, that I speak from experience and expertise and, and from a, an honest and critical analysis of the data, and, and they just don't understand what happened to me. And uh, I don't either. I don't either. And I just tell them, hey, remember who I am. Remember what I taught you. Remember how I practice medicine. And, and you know, uh, trust in that. I, I can't go beyond that. But it's it's really sad. Uh, all of my trainees and colleagues um, – 
are, are just uh, scratching their heads as, as to what happened to me. They all trust me. Um, we, we fought battles at the bedsides. We've done everything we could for patients. And, and, and now I'm, I'm being viewed as some sort of fringe and mm. radical. I don't know what it is. It's sad. It's so sad. As we said at the start, um, while they fiddle, Rome burns. Um, do you think Rome will just burn right out or... Yeah. It's burning right now. Are you kidding me? Oh, it's on fire. But do you think I mean, there's still a couple of areas left that haven't been singed? Do you think is it going to be complete obliteration, or do we um, do we have some hope? I'm going to say we have hope. But to, to, to the idea that Rome is burning, my group and my team for months we've had the solution, and it's been nothing but dismissed, suppressed, and attacked. It's been months. We used to have chest pains every day at all of our losses. That was back in December. We're now in March. We've been um, we're now numb to it. We do what we can and we know it doesn't work because no one listens and we're being suppressed and attacked. And and, and it, it, the Rome has been burning the whole time. I, I, I don't I, I don't know what to say. Look, if somebody wants to find out more, uh, pick a website for us. FLCCC.net. I mean, especially in regards to ivermectin. You know, at my group, when we originally started back in March, all we were about is experts trying to come up with the most effective treatment protocols for COVID. Our first protocol in March didn't have ivermectin. It had corticosteroids. And that was at a time when the entire world said corticosteroids were harmful. Do not use them. I don't know if you know this. But I first testified in the Senate in May. My first testimony was shouting to the world that corticosteroids were critical and life-saving. I got attacked, dismissed. I had to resign from my job. Six weeks later, corticosteroids became the standard of care in the treatment of COVID because of the Oxford trial. But I was already shouting at the world a month beforehand. And so, like, this isn't my first rodeo of no one listening to me and me being attacked. It, it's just this one has been long. I, I, I testified in December, and still no one wants to adopt ivermectin. I'll tell you there's a difference. Corticosteroids are only indicated in the moderate to severely ill when they're, they're in the hospital. Ivermectin is protective, and it prevents hospitalization. And I think it's a competitor to a lot of different pharmaceutical molecules and it's a competitor to vaccines and it's being attacked and dismissed and it's sad. Well, I can't really prescribe anything for you at the moment, except I see the log fire behind you. So maybe for medicinal purposes only, a good whiskey or a bad one and sit up with your feet up on the chair and just think about the future. Maybe don't think about the future. That'll scare you. Just just think about nothing, all right? A couple of whiskeys, log fire, you're living the dream. I'll try. But you know what? At the same time, I'm being asked for my advice, my guidance, my advocacy, and and I can't help but respond. I mean, you know, not doing what I'm doing is not an option. I, I mean, I couldn't rest. Mm. You know, there, there there there's there's knowledge that can help save people's lives. And you know, I want to end on a positive note. Although in a lot of the Western countries we're being dismissed and discredited, um, we're having so many successes. 
the amount of emails, the amount of doctors who've adopted ivermectin, who tell us what they're doing for their patients, the amount of countries that are adopting it in their national guidelines. We have a map that's colored with all the countries that have adopted it in their national guidelines, and it's it's increasing in South America and Africa and Central America and Eastern Europe. It, it, it's, it's actually quite um, uplifting. Um, it's not as much as I want it to be. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I feel very, very um, satisfied that I, I am doing good by the world. Not by the entire world, but good portions of it. Dr. Pierre Corey, keep up the good fight. Uh, if you can, enjoy whiskey and the log fire. Thank you very much. Thank you. In the U.S., there's a lot of migration talk from Silicon Valley corporates moving out of California to Texas, many New Yorkers moving to Florida and, of course, the Biden-created schmozzle on the southern border. With his thoughts, Blake Christian. Blake, great to see you once again. Great to be here. Look, there's been a lot of talk about Silicon Valley corporates moving out of California to Texas, and many uh, New Yorkers moving to Florida. Is this happening on a large scale? Well, the, uh, a lot of the politicians are, are in denial on it, but uh, the statistics are pretty clear that there has, you know, during COVID... There's been a, a, a huge surge in people moving to lower tax states and also those states that have less of a tendency to lock people down. What other significant migration patterns are we seeing in the U.S. and what is driving them? You know, a lot, a lot of people are moving to more rural areas uh, just to have a little more space so that you're not in a, you know, a high rise. Um, you know, the real estate market in New York's been pretty decimated a lot of good deals in Manhattan right now. And, um, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of the wealthy people had second homes, third homes, and, uh, they started spending time in those vacation homes and then realized, Hey, I, you know, I'm not working in the office anyway, since I'm working remotely, I'll just change residency, get a lower tax rate, a little more elbow room. And, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty happy. So, uh, it's no, no wonder that, uh, this migration change has happened. Do you see cities such as New York or LA trying to attract businesses back, maybe with incentives, or is there no recognition that they have problems? Now, you know, they, they are definitely, you know, ramping up some of their economic development programs. Um, you know, I've, I've seen, seen some ads run, you know, on, on, uh, on the internet and things. Uh, so I, I think, I think, you know, the, the people behind the, the curtain are seeing, you know, that there's really stuff going on. Again, the politicians tend to, to you know, put up a good front that, uh, oh, you know, we're really not losing that many people and, you know, businesses are booming here. But, you know, it's, it, you know, they're changing corporate headquarters as well as, you know, moving their employees out. Mm. About economic recovery across the country, where... Will it be most pronounced and where will recovery take a lot longer? I'd imagine uh, L.A. would be one of those places it's just been decimated. Yeah, I I mean, and also Northern California, uh, the Bay Area is having, uh, you know, a lot of problems um, in Southern California. You know, San Diego, I haven't heard as much about, but being, uh, you know, a border town, you know, they're they're going to have some they're having issues right now 
uh, with respect to um, you know the border issues. What about Long Beach? Because uh, you're also headquartered there. And uh, just recently, uh, I think about two months ago, we spoke to John Sangmeister from uh, uh, from a fabulous restaurant there called Gladstones. Um, how are they handling things now? Well, they're they're uh, they're open, so uh, he's happy about that. But uh, they're you know they did get a couple of hundred million dollars, um, or they're expecting a couple hundred million dollars uh, under you know the the COVID recovery plan. And uh, so that's going to help them a little bit, but uh, they've you know dug themselves into a into a pretty pretty deep hole. A lot of uh, a lot of businesses, retailers, and things are out of business now. A lot of restaurants closed. So it's going to take it's going to take some time. And and they're they're a um, you know they they have a lot of convention business there. And I think that's going to be, you know, there's a lot of euphoria with the, the success of the vaccines that we have, but it's still, you know, I, I talk to business people every day and, you know, there's not a bunch of people ready to jump on planes and, you know, start, you know, being in a, a room full of a, a couple of thousand people. So it's going to be a, a slow, very slow, I think the travel industry They'll get a little bump out of this, but you know it's going to take a while to get back to normal. I, I think a couple of years, maybe two, three years. The southern border, it seems to have fallen after uh, the former President Trump uh, was building the wall, keep the uh, country more secure. It seems to be almost a thing of the past. Do we know where the bulk of these immigrants will be relocated from this influx of immigrants from um, South America, including Mexico? I, th- I think Texas is probably the hardest hit hit from the migration. I, I just read 100,000 people were detained just in February, 78,000 in January. And from what I'm seeing on the news, uh, March will eclipse, you know, both of those, maybe, maybe exceed those two combined. Mm. Um, it was the largest, you know, influx since... Um, 2006. So it's not, you know, it's not boding well for, uh, you know, getting getting that, you know, all those issues under control. Will this surge affect the supply and price of labor in some areas? In, and is this supported by big business and small business? Uh, you know, it, I would say no. Um, you know, as far as, you know, increasing the labor supply, that really depends on states. You know, I mean, so every state's a little different on uh, how closely they look at um, uh, workers and, and uh, you know, sign off on their I-9s that are, are filed to, to, you know, confirm residency. And like Cal- California, you're actually, as an employer, not, you're not allowed to question documents that they provide you. So you could get a, a California driver's license from somebody um, or other immigration papers that don't look right, and you're you're actually not allowed to question those. You ju- you just have to take them at face value. Uh, Utah, for example, where I live, uh, is is very strict, and so um, there's not as many uh, undocumented workers here as you would have in California, Texas. I can't speak to, but I think they're they're probably in between the two extremes that I just mentioned. How will the mass migration affect federal and state budgets? 
Yeah, that's, you know, I mean, that, those are, these are all, you know, unbudgeted items, you know, so now all of a sudden the feds are going to be incurring some of these costs. They're going to be pushing some of these to the states. And it's, this is, you know, it's not, as I said, just, just the hotel stays budgeted at 83 million. That's not all the food. Um, that's not, you know, medical, that's not temporary facilities. I mean, it, this is hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, and, and it'll easily be billions um, in dealing with all this. You know, you got a hundred million people that you didn't plan for. And, you know, unlike the Trump administration that kept them in Mexico, they're bringing them over. And, you know, a percentage of these, um, just like the U.S. population, ha- have COVID. And they are you know, from what I'm hearing and seeing, you know, they're allowing them in and not really tracking them. And mm. I don't know if they're getting vaccines or not. But so it's, it's kind of a kind of a crazy time. If somebody wants to find out more about Holthouse Carlin and Ventrite, how would they contact you, Blake? Uh, so our website is hcvt.com. And uh, you could just Google Blake Christian CPA and uh, you'll get my contact information that way also. And finally, the elk problem, uh, how is it looking? <laughs> you know, we, we had a, probably about 60 elk up on the hill behind us uh, uh, three nights ago. Uh, we had uh, some, uh, a couple of uh, heavy days of snow, which we enjoyed uh, skiing this weekend. And uh, they, they, usually you can tell when the bad weather's coming because they come out they eat a lot of food and then they go, they go uh, hibernate a little bit for a few days. So, but I haven't seen any. Uh, haven't seen any today. I sort of picture but. you, Blake, walking up and down the mountains with your uh, your uh, shoes with the long white socks with the feathers poking at the bottom of it, shorts, and uh, a little cap, and yodeling away through the mountains. Uh, Blake Christian, <laughs> CPA and elk herder. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good to see you. And that's it for Asia Pacific Today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Mike Ryan.